Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. An Elio's Original each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. The Aftermath. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this episode of The Aftermath. Today, we will be speaking with guest expert, Professor Katrina Seth. She is the Marshall Foch Professor of French Literature at Oxford University. Let's hear what she has to say about the beheading of Marie Antoinette. Professor Seth, welcome to the show. Hello, Rebecca. Lovely to be here. So can we start off by just having you give us a rundown of Marie Antoinette's life before she moved to France? Um, Who were her parents? What was her education like? Marie Antoinette was born in Vienna, Austria, on November the 2nd, 1755. She's the daughter of Francis Stephen and, more importantly, of Maria Theresa, who was a formidable woman. Maria Theresa ran Austria and de facto ran the Holy Roman Empire. And she also gave birth to 16 children, of whom Marie Antoinette was the 15th and last girl. Now, you might think that because she was busy running the country, she wouldn't have had much time for her children. But Maria Theresa was something of a hands-on mother and was interested in her children's upbringing. That said, she had a strong belief that women and men shouldn't be educated in the same way. And although she was a ruler, she didn't think women should be rulers on the whole. So Marie Antoinette, in common with her sisters, was not educated to have any particular political knowledge. She was given schooling 
in what were considered to be more womenly talents, like music, for instance. She's very good at music. Um, she doesn't like um, academic pursuits very much, and it's not something which is encouraged. She enjoys theatre, dancing, and this sort of thing. And so when it's decided that she will marry the heir to the French throne, she's given some additional education to try and get her French up to scratch. French is the court language, but her French um, is, I think, probably conversationally fine, but she doesn't write it very well at the time, for instance. She's taught a bit about French history. She's taught about the main aristocratic families in France and so on. But she's not an intellectual by... Um, sort of natural leaning, isn't Marie Antoinette? So once she arrives in France and uh, she's there to marry Louis XVI, how is she perceived in court, in the French court? And, and how does she have to adjust? Well, Marie Antoinette's birth almost coincides with an important event in European history, which is the reversal of the traditional balance of power, what they refer to in general, as the renversement des alliances, where France and Austria end up as allies when they were not traditionally. But this means that there is still quite strong anti-Austrian sentiment in France when Marie Antoinette arrives. So on the one hand, her marriage to the heir to the throne of France is the culmination of Maria Theresa's foreign policy. And on the other, it goes against the grain for a number of French um, families, aristocratic families, but also common people. So on the one hand, she's perceived as a foreigner and not the sort of foreigner you might want to have um, as your future queen. On the other, um, she's charming and people are very happy to see a young woman around the court. King Louis XV uh, is future King Louis XVI's grandfather. So he's an old man by then. And it seems that there'll be a sort of new lease of life to court when Marie Antoinette arrives. So she's appreciated by lots of people for that reason. Um, it's it's not an altogether positive um, welcome, but uh, there are some positive sides to it for her, I think. Help us understand why the French disliked the Austrians. So that, that tension is a historic tension. It's due... I mean, very much in the same way as nowadays, states align with each other. Um, traditionally, um, some states align with each other. So, for instance, um, states might align with each other because they have the same language or they have the same religious tradition, um, the same type of vision of um, foreign policy and so on. And traditionally, France and Austria had been at odds. And as a result... Um, the anti-Austrian sentiment was there. I mean, a bit like if you think of what might have been the fallout after um, the Second World War, where you would have expected, um, for instance, uh, you know, the, the Americans to side more naturally with people who had been on their side during the war than, for instance, um, with the uh, Germans who had been on the opposing side. So it's, it's that type of geopolitical balance. Yes, thank you for explaining that. Now, now it makes sense when you put it in a, a more modern context, of course. <laughs> um, something that we didn't go into detail in our episode, but uh, just because we ran out of time, but I, I think it's important for us to touch on is the fact that the couple did not consummate their marriage for the first seven years. Why was that? Well, there are a lot of questions as to why that was. Um, the When... 
Marie Antoinette and the future Louis XVI are married. They're both teenagers. Um, they're thrown together. This is an arranged marriage. They have never met before um, Marie Antoinette is packed off with a retinue and handed over to France. This is the strange um, aspect of royal weddings uh, in the early modern era, where, in a sense, the women are like hostages almost, handed over to a foreign power. So Marie Antoinette is sent to France and doesn't know her, doesn't know the future king of France whom she has to marry. So when things like that happen, there's no guarantee that you're necessarily going to get on. They're both of them quite young and not particularly interested, I think, um, in sex or anything of the sort at the time. Uh, the king likes hunting. There have been some suggestions that because of the anti-Austrian sentiment, he might have been upset to have been given an Austrian bride rather than someone um, whom he might have felt closer to uh, politically. Um, though, I mean, there's no proof of that, but some people have suggested it. And so the consummation takes a long time. And when it finally happens, of course, Marie Antoinette is enchanted about it and can write off to her mother, who's been sending her letter after letter, bugging her and saying, you know, get on with it. You know, there's only one thing you have to do in life, and that is produce an heir for your husband and for the King of France. (laughs) So how did this contribute to the gossip around her? And can you tell us a little bit about the libelles? Is that how you pronounce it? Libelles, yeah. The, the French love gossiping and the French have a tradition, or at least had in the early modern era, a tradition of um, caricatures, but also of printed texts and texts which you would copy, which would, for instance, be very suggestive texts or scatological texts, which would be mocking figures in the public eye. And Marie Antoinette um, is someone who will be mocked through uh, Libelle, Some of them, you know, poems and so on. Some of them are fun and um, gentle. Some of them get very unpleasant um, subsequently. And Marie Antoinette is mocked at first because she decides that she wants to get up very early and see the sunrise. So that's the very first of the libelle, because this is considered to be um, something completely capricious to want to do. The fact that the marriage hasn't been consummated, that there's no heir to the throne for a number of years, also means that there are a lot of um, things going around, people, you know, talking to each other about why this hasn't happened. And when Marie Antoinette finally gets pregnant, whether or not, you know, this might not be the king's child because it had taken so long um, and so on. When we think about uh, Marie Antoinette, uh, aside from her violent death, obviously, the the second thing that comes to mind is her fashion. Why is this such a big part of her legacy? When Marie Antoinette gets to court in France, she's a teenager. She's cut off from her family. She has this husband who's not interested in her. So obviously, she has to find her own entertainment. She'll play the harp an awful lot. But one of the other things she does is she gets very interested in fashion. And France at the time has beautiful materials, has very good seamstresses and so on. And Marie Antoinette is going to become something of a fashion icon. She's someone who will be interested in new clothes, in you know, beautiful additional elements which can personalize your dress. So, you know, ribbons, feathers and so on. She gets very interested in how her hair is done. And that becomes, in a sense, something which turns her 
into a specific public figure quite different to what the previous queen had been. The previous queen um, had been very much a sort of staid and respectable lady, whereas Marie Antoinette became um, this young, bright person on whom everybody's eyes um, were um, you know, sort of staring. They were staring at her as someone beautiful and original and new and fashionable and setting trends. What was uh, Louis XVI like? Louis XVI is someone who's very interested in hunting. He's very interested in the locksmith's work. He's very interested in geography. So there are a number of activities in which he's interested. He's more of an intellectual than Marie Antoinette is. Um, He's somebody relatively calm, but also sometimes indecisive. And that will come to the fore at various stages when there are political crises. And Marie Antoinette is inciting him to act and he is hesitating before doing so. And that's in particular the case during the revolution. I had read something um, that he did not have a mistress and somehow this hurt Marie Antoinette's reputation in court. Um, Can you talk to us about that? The French kings had a long tradition of having public mistresses. Louis XV, in particular, had several mistresses who were presented as such at court. And so the king led a parallel life. He had um, his wife, the queen, and then he had a series of mistresses um, who were then given, for the most important ones, were given sort of rooms at court and uh, were actually present at a lot of royal functions. And this means that when public opinion wanted to turn against the king, there was a sort of respect for him as the figure of the king. And so what they would do is they would turn against the mistress and she would be seen, for instance, as profligate. She would be seen as responsible for anything which was going wrong with the monarchy. And Louis XVI doesn't have a mistress on whom you can pin all your criticism. And therefore, if you're going to treat the king as a sort of figurehead, as the the father of the nation, and there isn't this sort of sidekick you can accuse, well, who else is there? There is the queen. And the queen, who, because she's foreign, amongst other things, um, is going to concentrate quite a lot of the criticism, which might have been levelled at an official mistress had Louis XVI had one. Now, I I know that this is an impossible task, but um, can you... Talk to us uh, briefly about the revolution that is brewing in France, you know, toward the late 1700s. Why did it start? France is a very um, inegalitarian society before the revolution. And all the way through the 18th century, a number of things have been happening. There have been a number of wars, and so the coffers of the state are empty. Before the French Revolution, there are series of hard winters, hot summers, and so on. So very um, poor crops, poor harvests. So people are starving. So those are economic um, aspects. There's also in parallel, I think, an evolution of society. In France, power was concentrated in the hands of very few people. So with obviously the king at the top of the pyramid, and a whole series of privileges um, granted to the nobility. So, for instance, um, tax was paid um, essentially by people who were not members of the nobility. So, paradoxically, you could be very rich and not really taxed, whereas you could be 
relatively poor and be taxed quite heavily. And throughout the 18th century, there's the development of a class of people who are becoming more like the nobility in that they're becoming more educated, they're often um, having better incomes and so on. So they can ape the nobility, but they don't have the privilege that the nobility enjoys. And therefore, there is a feeling of you know, great um, discomfort in certain categories of the population at this society in which not everybody has the same rights. And so the revolution is essentially about trying to redress things, about trying to make um, rights be common to a much wider selection of people, I think. And what role did the Enlightenment play in the French Revolution? Well, I mean, we would need to have more than um, a single podcast to answer that particular (laughs) question. But I think what is true is that the philosophical basis for the French Revolution um, has partly been worked through during the 18th century by a number of people referred to as the philosophes or philosophers. So people like um, Montesquieu, Voltaire and Rousseau, who are reflecting on questions like the balance of powers, like um, whether it's possible to separate um, the executive power from the judiciary or from legislative powers um, and so on. So it means that there are quite a lot of people thinking about that, thinking about whether or not um, men can be equal when they live in a society which is not equal, but whether in some way legislation could make people equal and so on. So these are ideas which are very much circulating um, and percolating down I think, because they've been in circulation for some time. Um, So I I think that's one of the ways in which you could say the Enlightenment contributed to the revolution. How aware was Louis XVI and and his advisors and other members of the court of of the unrest that's happening outside of their close-knit social bubble in Versailles? That's a very hard question to answer because I don't think there's a a uniform answer to it. Uh, I think that there are times when one would have been struck by events happening in particular places. Um, But the revolution occurs because of a set of elements which coalesce. I don't think it was necessarily predictable. Um, You know, it could have happened earlier or later or not at all had different people been in different places at different times. The affair of the necklace uh, seems to be this turning point, uh, or, or I would say the point of no return for Marie Antoinette. Can you help us understand uh, this? Uh, what seems like a farcical situation? And uh, how did Marie Antoinette, who was an unknowing victim, end up paying the price for it? You're entirely right. It is something which sounds farcical. Um, the Cardinal de Rouen, Uh, is the man, in a sense, responsible um, in that he is the man who was wanting to curry favour with Marie-Antoinette and he was vain enough to believe uh, what um, the very very naughty um, people who who invented the whole affair uh, tried to make him believe. So who were guilty? I mean, he was responsible and they were guilty in a sense if one were to um, dissociate guilt and responsibility. And Marie Antoinette is, is the victim trapped in this extraordinary triangle. And you're right also to say it's the point of no return in, in many ways. Um, 
I think what happens with the affair of the necklace is that Marie Antoinette is seen as potentially guilty. Um, it's one of those, you know, the expression mud sticks. Um, in French, they say, il n'y a pas de fumée sans feu. There's no smoke without fire. And a lot of people thought, well, if this has been going on, it must have been somehow with Marie Antoinette um, allowing it to happen. And in the same way, one of the things they did when they were examining the receipts uh, to, to judge who was responsible for what was they looked at the signatures um, to show that the signatures were not Marie Antoinette. And that was fairly traditional in um, 18th century uh, justice. You would look um, and check whether um, signatures were authentic or not. Um, and the fact that they might actually check whether they were authentic or not suggests that they could have been authentic. So because they used that um, element to disprove um, something, suggested that it could have proved something too. And so Marie-Antoinette, although she is not remotely responsible um, and, and not remotely guilty, uh, was indeed the, the victim of the, of the diamond necklace affair. After the royal family is moved to Paris and put in house arrest, uh, how does their life change? When the royal family moves to Paris in October 1789, they do so because mob rule has taken over. They are escorted there. It's not their personal choice to go to Paris. They are then installed in one of the royal palaces in Paris, the Palais des Tuileries, which doesn't exist um, anymore. And they live, as you say quite rightly, under a form of house arrest. Now, initially, there is a sort of court life which goes on again, and they're allowed a degree of freedom. They're allowed, for instance, to spend time in another of the royal palaces, Saint-Cloud, during the summer. Uh, they're allowed to you know, receive guests uh, and so on, and to go, you know, to go out. And then over time, um, at different stages, when the revolutionaries feel that the king is not responding to their requests as they wish him to, their conditions are made more difficult. And their conditions are made more difficult uh, gradually. Um, then they're sometimes relaxed again um, and then made harsher again and so on. Um, but they're very much deprived of their, of their freedom to do what they want. So how does it change even further when the king is tried and then sentenced to death? So in... Um, it, it happens in two stages. The first stage is when they have to leave the Tuileries. The royal family has to leave the Tuileries um, because uh, the, the Tuileries have been stormed um, on the 10th of August, 1792. They're then moved to the Temple, which is um, transformed into a prison. It's sort of fortress. And there they really are um, not just under house arrest. They are in prison. They can no longer receive guests. There's no semblance of court life at all. Um, it's just them with you know, jailers and people like that coming in um, and out. So it, it's nothing like it was in, in the Tuileries. So that's the first stage. And um, the family is split up partway through, with Marie-Antoinette remaining with her um, daughter and uh, sister-in-law and the Dauphin with the king. The king is then taken off and tried. He's executed on the 21st of January 1793. 
and Marie-Antoinette um, is separated subsequently from her son um, and she is taken to the Conciergerie prison in central Paris by the banks of the Seine and she is kept in prison there um, and uh, subsequently she'll be put on trial and executed. And at, at this trial, she's charged with a litany of things, including treason, as well as incest. How does she respond to her charges? We, we have the transcripts of bits of the trial, not of all of the trial. So we know what Marie-Antoinette um, answered to certain things. And amongst others, she, she holds a very firm line. The trial itself is quite strange because the witnesses who are brought in are actually quite low-grade witnesses, to the witnesses who, who are brought in um, in order to, to attack her, to level charges at her. It's very clear that, for instance, when she's accused of um, corresponding with the enemy, they, don't, they can't prove it, but she clearly has been. And so she denies it. But she doesn't believe, for instance, that corresponding with her um, nephew, the emperor, is, is a form of treason, but it is very clearly. So in that respect, she's very clearly guilty. She's also accused of a number of other things, as you say, including um, incest, completely trumped up charges. And there she's said to have um, turned around and said, um, you know, you, you can't accuse me of that, as any mother here um, will know. And it was apparently a very... Um, moving moment in the in the trial when it absolutely became clear that this was a trumped up charge and it became clear even though the people who were in the room listening to her um, were not favorable to her so can of course she's tried and and she's found guilty um and sentenced to death can you take us through uh her final day um and how did it affect her legacy those final moments Marie-Antoinette is um, taken off to the guillotine, having had her hair cut. Um, She's wearing very simple clothes. Uh, She is not allowed any of the comforts the king had been allowed when he was executed. Um, She's uh, not, he, for instance, was allowed a closed carriage and so on. She's taken in a cart backwards um, she's wearing a simple bonnet on her head. She has her hands tied and she doesn't have a priest with her. Um, the king had been given a priest and this sort of thing. So everything is done uh, to make it really unpleasant. Um, and so she's taken She's taken to the scaffold. There are stories according to which uh, she, she might have tripped on her way up the steps to the scaffold and that she might then have um, trod on the toe of the executioner and have said, um, I, I'm very sorry, sir, I didn't do it on purpose or, or words to that effect. But, I mean, nobody knows. <laughs> These are you know, part of the, of the myth of Marie-Antoinette. Uh, but so... Marie-Antoinette's legacy, I think, is shaped almost entirely by these final days, by the fact that she was executed. And I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One reason is a political reason. Marie-Antoinette is turned into a martyr figure in a way that Louis XVI isn't. In France, Queens have no rights. They're just the wives of kings. So Marie-Antoinette had no political rights in the, in the eyes um, of uh, the, the, the French monarchy. And by executing her, 
revolutionaries turned her into a political victim. So in a sense, they granted her um, a power or an aura which she didn't have officially. And so she becomes a martyr figure. And I think that is enhanced also by the the unfair accusations of incest uh, and things like that. So I think that's one of the reasons that her legacy is so strong. And I think the other is, you mentioned her interest in fashion. She's interested in fashion and there are an awful lot of portraits of her, including very beautiful portraits by Vigée Lebrun. She's on, um, on view, as it were, through these portraits and through a lot of engravings. It's a time when the, there are um, lots of engravings because um, printing has become cheaper. And so her picture or her sort of visions of her have circulated very widely. And again, we can think of other iconic figures nowadays. We can think of the way um, in which the late Princess of Wales, Princess Diana, was you know, sort of on the front cover of so many magazines across the world during her lifetime. Marie Antoinette was a bit like that, this sort of iconic um, figure in her youth. So that on the one hand, then the sort of martyrdom um, on the other, I think made a potent combination and transformed her into uh, this sort of creature of fantasy about whom Hollywood makes movies and um, the Japanese, uh, you know, produce mangas and so on. So finally, I have to ask, at the end of the day, if you had to pick one person or thing, it, it, it can also be a concept, that you think is to blame for the beheading of Marie Antoinette, uh, who or what would that be? That's a very hard question. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think I, I, I think um, probably the fact that the French don't like women meddling in politics and that she was seen as a political figure and therefore as very dangerous. <gasps> we hadn't even touched on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, there we are. <laughs> What was your answer? Oh, we got it very wrong. We said it was the uh, social bubble of the French court. Oh, well, it's an interesting answer, too. <laughs> but it feels it feels like we might have to uh, shift that uh, verdict after speaking with you. So it's, uh, we're so grateful to have you on our show. Well, it was lovely talking to you. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Wow. Nice. Yeah. 
What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have stress and anxiety we carry around as we go about our everyday life. At The Alarmist, we know it's always better to say it out loud and talk it through. Whenever I stress about the sinking of the Titanic, I don't sit with those thoughts in a dark room. I turn on the lights and dive right into it. Therapy is a great place to get things off your chest and work through what's really going on. Maybe you can't stop spiraling or catastrophizing. I started therapy over 10 years ago and never looked back. If you're thinking of starting therapy... Give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Heck, we sometimes change our minds and rethink the verdict at The Alarmist. And that's also okay when it comes to therapists. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Alarmist today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash alarmist. With us today, we have producer Amanda Lund. Hello, Rebecca. Hello, Alarmy. And fact checker Chris Smith. Hi, guys. How about that uh, interview with uh, Professor Seth? Uh, so I, we're, ha- we're asking her to do an impossible task. You know, <laughs> like... <laughs> Can you just like in 20 minutes explain to me, you know, like why, why Marie Antoinette is, has such a legacy and also like, by the way, French revolution and also maybe like a little bit of the enlightened to enlightenment too. Well, it's not impossible because she did it. I know. Impressive. <laughs> um, but she did it so well and she said so many interesting things and her response to who she would blame Honestly, oh my it gosh. shocked me. It shook well, me to my bones. I have to like pull that clip off the Zoom because her face when you asked her to pick one concept <laughs> or thing to blame, it was like you asked her to, I don't know, count to a trillion. <laughs> she was just like, I, I think her voiceover inside her head was like, you want me to do what? <laughs> It was amazing. How long do you think it would take to count to a trillion? A long time. A Probably. I think you could do it in a weekend if you had, you know, good enough supplies and stuff. I have no concept of time or math, so I, I don't want to commit I think to I anything. I do it in a weekend. No, I, I don't could. think you can. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. I just got to 20 in basically three seconds. You so. skipped. No, I didn't. Play the tape back, and we're recording this, Amanda, <laughs> on the Tascam. Check it out. 
she was amazing, though, and yes. I just love for her to be my professor because <sighs> um, she answered all the questions, and she would just glide right into the 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 answers without sort of she just knew everything no deliberating no um no let me think about that she didn't have to look at anything up it was so impressive Mm-mm. i know she had like dates just stored in her head she she like knew when they changed uh, uh prisons like when they went from the palace she just had that date in her head i'm sure there's a reason why that i i am not I, i'm not aware of but i mean that was impressive and she brought up some interesting points. A couple of things I think we missed, I have to oh say. Oh, my God. So much. So much. Uh, although we were in the realm. But do you want me to re- rattle through my list real quick of my notes I took? Please. Yeah. So one that I do think we missed, even though we touched on it, we just didn't get it up on the board, was anti-Austrian sentiment. Yeah. And how the car, the um, chips were stacked against Marie Antoinette from the very get-go. So true. Did we that not mention really that? I thought up. we did mention We mentioned that. it. We talked about it, but we didn't uh, label it and put it up on the board. It's interesting also the way she put it in the you know modern context was that, you know, it's really just like where are you aligned when these wars kind of go down and, and, and then that sort of sentiment carries on down into the culture. So, you know... It'd be interesting to sort of, if we did an even further deep dive, to go back into the history there between France and Austria. Yeah, it it really just struck me because, you know, it's like we understand it. They're like, well, they were at war, so they didn't like each other. But like I hadn't understood that in, in its actual context. It's like, yes. But but now put yourself in their shoes or bring it to the, you know, let's talk about it in modern times. It's like, who are we aligned with right now and who are we not aligned with? And that's that th- that's the same thing. So, yeah. <laughs> and then the other thing that we circled this and we did touch on it by putting um, the libels up on the board. But she I love the way she said it, which was the French love of gossip. I know. I love that. <laughs> Because it, it does, it's so specific. Um, and they were the ones who came up with these uh, pamphlets, with these libels. I, every time I say it, I feel silly because I know I'm saying it incorrectly. Um, libels, uh, libels, libel, um, libel. Uh, <laughs> they were the ones who came up with it. So obviously they're the ones who loved it, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. And um, the other thing she said that I thought was, uh, you know, worth noting was that in France, queens have no rights. They're just the wives of kings. And by executing Marie Antoinette, the revolutionaries turned her into a political victim and a martyr figure, which also plays into what she ended up blaming, um, which is that the French don't like women meddling in politics. And we did... In our defense, we had misogyny up on the board. Right. So, yeah. so we weren't too far off from Dr. Seth's own verdict. Which is so ironic, too, because the way she described her mother, uh, Teresa, um, was that she was this, like, d- leader in Austria, right? Was she the she queen? Was pow- she was the, 
yes, she was the Holy Roman. She was married to the Holy Roman Emperor. She kind of like ran the Holy Roman Empire. Is what she said. Yeah, right. Exactly. (laughs) And so, um, and she's the Queen of Austria. And so Marie comes from her, and yet her mom is telling her, "Look, uh, you know, you're you can't actually be that's uh, patriarchy. You can't like (laughs) even though women's." She's yeah. powerful and she sees it in herself. She's like, not, it's not for everyone though. You know what it reminds me of is watching the season of the crown and Margaret Thatcher felt oh, a little bit like yeah. that where she was like, I am a woman in power, but I'm unique in that way. I'm still going to surround myself with men and like other women. Yeah. I don't know. They're not cut out it. for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in a way it was like, she had it. God, she, for Marie Antoinette, it was like the cards were just not in her favor because not only is she going to France where they don't perceive the queen as having any power, but she's also like coming, you know, getting it from her mom as well, hmm. where she doesn't have like the basis or the support. She has no one being like, hey, you know what? Speak up and like, you know, this is wrong. Or she just didn't have anyone in her ear really guiding her in, in a way where she could have overcome it. Mm. Yeah, and I think also the um, sort of randomness of the French Revolution in general, how Dr. Seth was saying that it could have happened earlier, it could have happened later, it could have happened not at all. And it was just sort of a matter of like wrong time, wrong place for Marie Antoinette, because once the the cards started falling, I, I don't think there was anything she could have done to change her own fate. Mm-hmm. I agree. And another thing uh, that I think that we didn't put up on the board, we briefly talked about it, but it was just an, wasn't discussed as much was the fact that they were teenagers. And I know we yeah. talked about it, but but that should have gone up on the board. The fact that they were just so young. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. uh, it, it, like you said, timing, right? It was uh, things were bubbling up. Uh, it by, I guess, happenstance, it just, this is the time where things were bubbling up in France. And also they were so young. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And it was interesting. She, she said, I mean, teenagers at the time just, they just weren't interested in sex, which is just so, (laughs) so different from my own experience. I I can't even conceive of it. I can't even conceive of it. But I believe her. I believe that that's true. But it's just really hard for me to wrap my head around. Well, it's just because you didn't have a hobby like locks. <laughs> but, you know, if you think about I it. I think it, that's what was missing. You're right. Well, locks said, are, it's an erotic hobby. It is. I was going to say. Yeah. Actually, isn't it a metaphor? <laughs> it can be. The key and a, to my lock or whatever. That's what she calls me when we get when we have a, enough oh, Chardonnays in us. Um, so the what I was going to say about Louie was that he was she said that he was indecisive. And again, I really do think that that comes mm. with age and experience. Right. Yeah. And temperament, too, because you have like young kings. I mean, this isn't history, but look at King Joffrey from Game of Thrones. <laughs> you know, some young men are so decisive because they don't have, you know, that sort of uh, voice in the back of their head telling them to rethink things. So mm-hmm. I think it was also just a, their personalities, you know. Yeah. It's almost like fate should have just, uh, you know, gone up on the board. It's similar to Romeo and Juliet. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. You're right. It is. And then, of course, I, I have to shout out that we did not get the fashion industry up on the board. I know. 
We, we, I know. And I had it up on my, I had it on my notes and I was like, I'm not going to even go there because we just don't have time. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I understand. I know I'm going to, I'm going to get, uh, you're going to hear a, it from an, the alarm. Yeah, but you know, full. it was a factor. It was involved, but it, it was, you really can't draw a line from the fashion industry to the death of, of Marie Antoinette. I don't think well, uh, but it it was very, it's very visual. It was the, the visual. I don't know. And interesting how uh, Dr. Seth said that one of the reasons she's such an icon is because we do have so many portraits of her because she was so into fashion that she commissioned all these paintings and stuff. So we have this great image of her, especially going from this, you know, like powder puff pastry to having her hair cut in a wagon with a bonnet on going to her death. It's going, just such... Going backwards in the wagon. That image yeah, really stuck with me. I mean, sad. You don't really know, like, anybody who remembers being a baby and when you're in the baby seat facing the other direction, it's very disorienting. <laughs> or, like, if you're on a train, like, in the train, you're on a chair going the other, and you're going in the op- opposite direction, it's very disorienting. Yeah. Yeah, I had, we had a station wagon growing up, and so my sister and I would always sit in the back seat looking out the back window, and it was a full-on seat. It had a seatbelt and everything, right. but... I remember that. Yeah, I remember yeah. that, too. <laughs> All the little kids well, ended did, up you having was to it go a Volvo? There. What kind of station wagon? Um, I'm trying to remember what it was. It was so if you if I say the word station wagon and you close your eyes and it something pops up into it, that's what we had. Okay. It was like brown with a stripey, oh, yeah, yeah. boxy brown station wagon. Those are like Broncos, Chevrolet, something like that. It, it must. <laughs> I, I it probably was yeah something like that, but I don't I don't remember the brand. I I know what you're talking about. Yeah. That's, uh, well, what I was going to say about fashion is that, um, like you said, Amanda, there was so many paintings and, uh, uh, of Marie Antoinette and she had like the fashions in them. Like she had the extra ribbon. She had the big hair. Like she wasn't doing herself any favors by uh, like nowadays you'd be like, I'm, you know, we just had the, the Oprah interview with uh, Megan and uh, Harry. And, you know, she chose like a simple black dress, but it's all like curated, right? I'm sure she thought about what dress she was going to wear. She doesn't want to come off as too flashy or whatever. Marie Antoinette didn't have the forethought to be like, hey, these people think I'm like uh, spending too much money uh, and and they're mad about that. Let me. Why don't I like do a portrait where I'm wearing a very simple dress? Mm, no PR. She needed no. a publicist. She did, yeah. <laughs> and a stylist. She needed. She needed a, an entourage, and she didn't have one. So, so what do we are think? you? What do you yeah. think? Change the verdict or keep the verdict? Um, yeah. As a reminder, we sent the French bubble to the French court bubble to jail, and we slapped the. Uh, Libelles. Yeah, I, I think that I think I do want to change it. And I think I want it to be because for me, that's the patriarchy, right? And I know that that's a big, broad thing to send to jail. And we have sent it before. But for this, that feels like the patriarchy. They didn't want women meddling in politics. They they just had it out for her. Because maybe, I think she was a woman. Maybe we say the French patriarchy. Oh, maybe what's the patriarchy in French? Sounds like a fact checker question. 
Let me go and look up. Let me. Google I would translate. love to butcher uh, that word in French. Oh, oh, okay, I got it. Sorry, it's patriarchat. Patriarchat. Patriar- patriarchat. What if we do this? Watch. Um, I can insert maybe this sound if you don't want to say it, Rebecca. Can you hear this? Hold on. Le patriarcat. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> okay, I'm going to call it. Le patriarcat. You're going to the alarmist jail. <laughs> I'm very pleased. I'm really glad we got to learn more about Marie Antoinette, the myth uh, behind her, because it's. I do feel like she's someone that we all know about, but we don't really know about. So I'm glad we got to focus on her. And I'm very excited for our next episode uh, where we're going to discuss the Anita Hill hearings. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.